the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Fletcher. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, first of all, we're coming to you today split screen from Australia and Washington, D.C., <laughs> where Danny is in Melbourne with the koalas and the wallabies. And I'm here in Washington, D.C. with the Secretary of State. <laughs> Mark really did a Christmas miracle for our podcast in persuading the Secretary of State to join us to talk about the year in foreign policy, to talk about some of to talk about some of the president's successes and uh, and to ask some tough questions. Mark, you asked some tough questions. Thank you. I, I tried. Well, first of all, I like Mike Pompeo a lot. I'm really glad he's in his job. He's experienced. He you know he understands the threats of the world because he you know literally patrolled the uh, the Iron Curtain as a soldier. He's a uh, conservative internationalist. I think I don't know if he'd describe himself that way, but I I've known him for a very long time and and have always assessed him that way. And he has a great relationship with President Trump. And he gives President Trump very sound advice. The president sometimes takes it, sometimes doesn't. But I'm really happy that he's in there advising the president and that, you know, unlike some people in the administration, he has survived giving the president candid advice. But why I like Mike Pompeo and respect him is because he is the ultimate no drama official in this administration. As best I can tell, he doesn't leak or at least not as as wildly as some others. But in addition, you know, he is a man who, if I can put this in the nicest possible way, has really rolled with the punches. The president is impulsive and has a real knack for changing directions while you're going 65 miles an hour down the highway. Wait, turn left. And, you know, for a secretary of state who is managing our nation's national security policy and coordinating with our, you know, with our secretary of defense, managing our troops, that's not an easy challenge when the president decides, you know, in, in a phone call that he's going to change the direction of our policy in northeastern Syria or draw down the number of troops we have in another country. Those are all tough things to negotiate, not to speak of the sort of enormous complexities of the relationship with China and Russia and everything else, you know, which is very fraught. And I got to say, he has walked that tightrope, that balancing act really, really high up in the air without a net really well. And, you know, if you think about this, President Trump is the first president in a very long time that came to Washington into the job of commander in chief with literally no Washington experience. Even Barack Obama served a, you know, a quarter of a term or a third of a term in the Senate on the Foreign Relations Committee. So he had a little bit of understanding of how Washington worked. George W. Bush, his father was president. He saw the presidency up close. Donald Trump is new to all of this. And, you know, so it's, it's a challenge for anyone to help guide a president in his decision making, especially a president who's come in as a disruptor, not just of domestic policy and what he calls the swamp, but of our foreign policy, campaigned on getting us, you know, stopping endless wars, you know, making smarter decisions, winning again. Remember, that was the big theme, winning again. And, you know, there are foreign policy is an area where 
I think he's the, he's got a mixed record. I think he's done a lot of really good things. There's a lot of things about the Trump foreign policy that I think are much, 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 much better than his predecessor, and in some cases even better than ours was in the Bush administration where I worked. And there are other areas where I think he's made horrible mistakes. So the biggest challenges I want us to talk about with Mike Pompeo, and when I say us, I should add, not actually us, because here I am in Australia with the kangaroos and the koalas. Well, you sent me a bunch of questions. So I went in, I went in and spoke to him, but you sent me uh, some things that you wanted me to ask, which I dutifully did. We also asked some of our colleagues at AEI for their ideas. So we, I think we asked him a lot of uh, really interesting questions. And I was really interested, uh, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more robustly afterwards, because I don't want any spoilers for your really interesting conversation with the secretary. Again, one of the things that people like to do is they like to put put everything on Donald Trump. And, you know, Donald Trump is the president and the leader of the free world. You know, no, no mercy for him. On the other hand, our enemies, our adversaries do have agency as well. And so, you know, when we talk about, for example, whether the maximum pressure campaign is going well with Iran or whether uh, we're doing the right thing in Afghanistan, one of the things that I think Pompeo does with some skill is that he puts the uh, onus on our adversaries. Hey, this is what our policy is. You know what we want. You know what the right thing is. You can do it if you want. And then all of this goes away. Don't look at me. Don't look at us. Look at yourselves. And I, I like that. I do, too. And, uh, you know, and when he has disagreements with the president, he's, he keeps them private. He doesn't air his grievances either through leaks or publicly. And I think the president appreciates that. And I think he makes a little bit of news here in our interview uh, in a couple of areas. I don't want to do spoilers, but on Iran, he, uh, he makes a pretty serious charge against uh, some folks in the Obama administration about their behavior vis-a-vis Iran, undermining U.S. policy. So I don't know. Why don't we just go to the interview and then we can talk about it afterwards? Let's do it. All right. Here's our interview with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Okay. So let's, you know, we're at the end of the one year and about to start a new one in the final year of President Trump's first term in office. What do you see as the administration's biggest foreign policy accomplishments in 2019? Well, you know, there's a whole handful, and uh, many of them I think will actually bear fruit in 2020. Uh, but you stare at the things that we've done in the Middle East, whether that's the, uh, the work that was done uh, with Israel, respecting the Golan Heights in the way that it should, the announcement that came from the State Department here, uh, reversing a, a thing that John Kerry did that was disastrous for Middle East stability, asserting that every settlement had to be illegal under international law. We, we, we righted that ship. We got the legal piece of this right. Uh, the work that we've done to counter the growing threat from the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, in 2019 that followed the president's decision in 2018 to withdraw from the JCPOA, the support that we've provided for deterrence in the strait, all of those things I think set good conditions for a more stable Middle East as we move forward. The work that we've done also to rebalance uh, America's security apparatus, to think strategically about the threat for the next generation, which is the Chinese Communist Party. Those changes have been real and are beginning to manifest themselves in resource allocation and focus, not only uh, in strategy and policy. So now we have uh, real movement in the right direction to reflect uh, what the president laid out in his national security strategy back in 2016, reflecting great power competition. The list is long. We're setting conditions that uh, may well lead to a better place uh, with less risk and cost for America in South Central Asia and Afghanistan as well. Um, all of those things, I think, pretend well for good news for the American people in 2020. I'd, I'd add this one other thought. 
There's lots of noise here in Washington these days. The potential for distraction, I want our adversaries to know and our allies and friends to know too. The State Department is not distracted. State Department is focused on our mission. We will deliver really good outcomes for our friends and partners around the world and for the American people as we turn into the new year. Okay, well, let me, let's drill down on a couple of those topics that you raised. Let's talk about Iran. So your maximum pressure campaign has really crippled Iran with, with unprecedented sanctions. And those, I always argue those sanctions are an end in and of themselves because even if nothing else comes of it, Iran has less money to spend on terrorist proxies, on, on repressing its own people and all the rest of it. But what is the ultimate goal of the sanctions? Because it looks like the administration kind of has two Iran policies. One is epitomized by your 12 points, which basically would end the regime as we know it. Right? It would become a normal country, probably not the way it exists today. But then on the other hand, there's the maximum pressure to try and get Iran to the table to negotiate a deal, which seems to be the president's when he talks about it, his priority. Which of those two is our policy? Uh, first first uh, point, I think, is important one. Uh, I agree, there is an end to itself. Uh, Hezbollah has fewer dollars today. The Iraqi Shia militias have fewer dollars today. The Iranian regime is having to make choices in their defense budget for 2020. Uh, the world hasn't actually seen them yet, they're coming. Um, if you're an uh, Iranian deciding to participate in the Iranian military, you should be prepared to take a pay cut. Uh, this is significant and will manifest itself in 2020 in ways that we've not yet seen. Uh, and that the Iranian budget that's been proposed that begins in March of 2020 uh, is a fraud. It's just that uh, there, there will not be that much revenue and the costs will be much higher. And the Iranian military will uh, be forced to make some very difficult decisions. As for the policy, I think the president and I are perfectly aligned. Uh, the 12 points comport with the objective. That's what we need. How we get there is up to Iran. <laughs> the, the Iranian people, we hope, will have a voice in directing the transition to making the Islamic Republic of Iran not a uh, theology-based imperialist empire, but a normal nation. Uh, whether that happens by the Iranian regime making a choice to sit down at the table and have a conversation, or if the Iranian people direct the Iranian leadership to behave in a fundamentally changed way, in the end is up to the Iranians. So you're good with either outcome? Our, our desire is to destabilize the Iranian regime to the extent that we ultimately get a fundamentally different behavioral set mm -hmm. from those leaders. If it's the same people, so be it. The Iranian people will get to make that decision from our perspective, they've put risk on our friends and allies in Israel. They've imposed risk on the Gulf states, uh, states like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Jordanians, the Omanis, all of whom are friends and allies and partners of the United States. And our mission set is to create those conditions to give the Iranian people the opportunity to convince the Iranian uh, regime that it has to change its behavior. So you, since you've imposed the maximum pressure campaign in Iran, the regime has lashed out with several kinetic attacks. They took down a U.S. drone and then attacked Saudi oil facilities. In both of those cases, President uh, Trump showed a lot of restraint and chose not to respond kinetically. He chose to respond in the cyber domain. Was that a wise decision? And are you worried that the lack of a more robust military response sends a signal to Tehran that they can escalate? Because they clearly, after the first attack on our drone and we didn't respond, they escalated. Are you worried that they might escalate again if we don't send them a signal that there's going to be a cost to that? Our best analysis shows that we have established a set of deterrence lines. The Iranian regime will have to make the decision. What, look, you, you have folks from the previous administration telling them just hang on. I'll just be honest, I'll be straight up with you. You have, you have folks who served in, the, that served in the previous administration who are telling the Iranian leaders today, 
just hang on. President Trump will lose in the election in November, and we'll go back to appeasement. We'll write, the America will write you a big check. We'll, we'll underwrite your terror campaign around the world. We'll give you a clear pathway to a nuclear weapon system. Just wait till the Trump administration is finished. I, I think what we're seeing is that the Iranian regime recognizes uh, that that's not a path forward. That's not going to work. And so you see them engage in these behaviors. And we have each time taken a set of responses to the attack, as well as a set of responses that ratchets up our deterrence capability. So we have increased activity in the Straits of Hormuz. We've announced forced posture changes in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. There are a handful of things that we have done that I know the Iranians understand uh, have increased deterrence, increased risk, should they decide that they want to act out again. And put American lives, American assets, or those of our friends and partners in the region at risk. How serious were those cyber attacks? You'd have to ask the Iranians. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. So let's, let's turn to uh, North Korea. So we've sanctioned Iran very aggressively. It seems like we have been a little less uh, robust in our North Korea sanctions. There was a UN panel of experts report recently that described how Chinese and Russian firms are violating North Korean sanctions that their own governments voted to impose through the, uh, through the UN Security Council. Why don't we use secondary sanctions to cripple and bankrupt those Chinese and Russian sanctions busters? So I never talk about internal debates inside the United States government. We are always working to make sure that we match our legal system against the problem set. Mm -hmm. And so the sanctions regime we have in place today has been pretty effective. All sanctions regime have enforcement challenges. We're candid, we still have them. Uh, we, we wish the Chinese would do better. They've actually been better than they've ever been in history, but there's more that they could do. In two days, they'll all have a requirement that they voted for, the UN Security Council, to have every one of their workers that comes from North Korea on a worker's visa uh, return home. It's a significant piece of revenue for the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And for uh, Chairman Kim, we, we're asking for maximum enforcement of the UN Security Council resolution. And to the extent we think there's a uh, real risk that the enforcement is inadequate, I'm very confident the Department of Treasury and the Department of State will go to the President saying, here's the, here's the way we can ensure that the UN Security Council resolutions are more adequately informed. Is this a broader problem that you're going to be facing in the next year, which is because you raised the fact that uh, in Iran that uh, people are whispering to the regime including former U.S. officials whispering to their regime saying, just wait, we'll come back in a year. North Koreans might be waiting till. Uh, is this going to be just an issue in, in, in an election year that a lot of people are going to be waiting you out and seeing if Trump wins a second term? Uh, in a democracy where you state clearly how your leadership uh, is elected and changed, you, you, you always face that. Uh, right? it's, in the scheme of things, uh, right, as some countries think about things in grand strategic ways, uh, we have a four-year time limit on our leaders, and then they stand for re-election, and in the event they elected a second time, they're done. That is different, and it has, it has impacts. Nations certainly look at that, but I'm, I'm mindful. I'm America's second, second Secretary of State during President Trump's term. I'm on my third British counterpart, and in many countries, <laughs> and in many countries I'm, I've, I've long surpassed theirs. So government changes are natural in many, many countries. I think nations accept that when it comes to many of our policies on North Korea, on China, I think there is broad bipartisan support. So this issue that you described uh, is pretty acute uh, with respect to the uh, counter Iran campaign because the previous administration and in fact many Democrats have a radically different vision of how we ought to treat Iran. It's not the case in many other places. 
in China. So you helped get the president to sign the Hong Kong Policy Act. He got uh, the sanctions on the, for the treatment of the Uyghurs implemented. The administration has declared that our treaty with Manila covers the South China Sea, which is a major thing. We've sold Taiwan everything on the arms sale list that they asked for. Uh, and after all that, China still came back to the table and negotiated this phase one deal with the, with the president. Does that relatively muted Chinese response surprise you? And does that mean that we have uh, some running room to be even tougher with them? both in terms of North Korea and all these other problems, and in the South China Sea? I'm not surprised. Uh, I think the uh, Chinese economy uh, desperately needed uh, to get relief from the future sanctions that President Trump had laid out for them. So I think this was an imperative for them. Uh, with respect to all the other elements that you described, they are part and parcel of the president's strategy with respect to the Chinese Communist Party. This is an authoritarian regime that has engaged in expansionist behavior uh, and has denied freedom to many of its citizens. Those three major components are the kinds of things that we're looking for the Chinese Communist Party to uh, cease from. We want their economy to grow. We want success for their people. We love them, we know them. They, are, they have a long and rich tradition. But those things, right? Putting a, a million Muslims under conditions that we've not seen for decades in the world. Uh, to, to fail to live up to the commitments that the Chinese government made to the people of Hong Kong, to, uh, to walk away from the commitments in Taiwan, those promises that China made mm -hmm. to the world or to its people or the expectations that President Trump has laid out for them. If we can get those right and we can get a set of fair reciprocal trading agreements where they're not stealing our property, they're, they're, not, uh, uh, they're not denying our businesses the ability to send tweets, right? Those simple kinds of things that are, that are how normal nations behave, just, just ordinary stuff, then uh, we can have a robust, good relationship uh, with the people of China. So President Trump has talked about endless wars. If we don't want to fight wars ourselves everywhere around the world, we need allies and proxies to do it for us. How does the decision to pull out of northeastern Syria impact uh, the effort to work with proxies and allies like the Kurds? And in addition, does Turkey still belong in NATO? You know, it acts more like an adversary than an ally. I'll take the second one first, and then I'll, okay. I'll come back to that. Uh, it, we're having a difficult time with the Turkish relationship, to be sure. Uh, we've got a long tradition of them inside of NATO. They've done great work. They've sent their folks to fight alongside of us in places. Uh, they've provided uh, lots of Turkish resources to assist us, places where we could operate uh, as a NATO entity in the event that we were ever challenged against a NATO mission set. So we welcome that. Having said that, the Turkish government made the decision to purchase a high-end Russian air defense system. As you can see by the NDAA that the president will sign this evening, uh, there's a large group of people on Capitol Hill that think that doesn't work, including uh, not only those folks, but many of our European partners inside of NATO. And so we have to preserve the interoperability of the NATO systems. And so that's just unacceptable. So we work with the Turks to try and find a path forward. We, we tried to do it in Northeast Syria. We tried to find a path where we could uh, address their real uh, threat from the PKK while still doing the right thing by the people of Northeast Syria. Uh, President Erdogan made a decision to move in. Today, uh, and this is why I started with that, today we continue to work with the Kurds. So if you're looking around saying, is America a reliable partner, I'd say two things. Uh, we all ought to make sure we understand what the agreement is when we enter into it in the beginning. Everybody got something out of the relationship between the United States and uh, the SDF, a largely, although not exclusively, Kurdish force that fought valiantly in the takedown of the caliphate. 
Uh, we provided weapon systems, we provided air cover, we provided enormous intelligence. We much benefited the Kurds throughout the northeast portion of Syria. They were enormous beneficiaries from that relationship. One should never forget what we did for the Kurds in northeast Syria. But every relationship changes as the threat posture changes and one reverts to uh, another form of relationship when that threat posture changes. The threat posture today is very different. It's not that ISIS is gone, but the caliphate is. And so now the United States has reconfigured to match that. We still have a significant on-the-ground footprint. Uh, importantly, although much less talked about, we still have a very significant element of American air power that is providing cover for the airspace over those Kurds in the majority of Northeast Syria. We're still with them, we're still working alongside them, and the world should know we will always honor the commitments that we made when we enter into a partnership. Well, let's, let's talk about Afghanistan and how this relates. So the president said he plans to reduce troop levels in Afghanistan substantially, and he said that at the same time that we are talking about resuming negotiations with the Taliban. How likely is that to help us get a better deal in our troop level is our leverage? In negotiating with the with the Taliban, why why would we unilaterally announce that we're giving the Taliban what they want, which are troop reductions, if we want to get something out of the deal? Two missions in Afghanistan from the president that he provided to his Secretary of State. Uh, the first is to reduce risk to the United States, both from a cost perspective and the uh, number of forces that we were required to maintain there, so that um, we were distracted from that important great power rivalry that we spoke about earlier. And so there is an effort to make sure that we get our resources allocated appropriately. Second mission is to make sure that the homelands never struck from Afghanistan. So call it the broadly thought of counterterrorism mission in Afghanistan and more broadly in South Central Asia. That's my mission. That's what we've been working on since I came here now 19, 20 months ago. Uh, we've made progress on both fronts, but still a lot of work to do. If you ask the average Taliban, they would tell you that uh, their life has become a lot more difficult over the last 20 months. Uh, our air power has been used in ways it hasn't been used before. Our, our other capabilities have been vigorously employed, uh, all of which is to raise the cost for the malign activity of the Taliban. The second mission we've been in is to try and figure out if there's a peaceful resolution that we can get amongst all Afghanis. And so Ambassador Halilazad and his team, even today, are on the ground trying to figure out how to get a reduction in violence that would move to a ceasefire that is sufficient to permit intra-Afghan negotiations to take place. We're under, we're under no illusions. But let's make no mistake about the other half of this. The destruction of Al-Qaeda has taken place. Uh, ISIS has been significantly impaired. The terror risk from Afghanistan today is greatly reduced. And our posture there, the way we think about our strategic commitment to the region ought to reflect that diminished threat to the United States. You know this, Mark, right? We've got Al-Qaeda in Yemen. We've got ISIS in, you tell me how many countries, uh, the counterterrorism threat today isn't confined to Afghanistan in the way that we thought about it back in 2001 and 2002 and 2003. And our allocation of resources against that problem set needs to continue to match that. So that's the mission set. It's what Ambassador Khalilazad and the State Department are engaged in. We're doing it closely, uh, in close connection with our uh, brothers in the Department of Defense. And I'm very hopeful that in 2020, we will deliver on both ends of the 
command that President Trump gave to us. So our troop levels in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria are a shadow of their former selves. We don't have hundreds of thousands of troops anymore. I think we've got somewhere between 15 and 20,000 troops in, both, in all three countries, right? So that's a, and their job has changed from, you know, from being the pointy end of the spear to being enablers for indigenous forces in the, in the country who are taking most of the casualties, doing most of the fighting. We provide fire support and other things like that. And yet there's still this push to withdraw and get down to zero in all these places. You know, in the, the terrorist, as you've outlined, the terrorist threat still exists and it needs to be confronted. You know, and I think back to the Reagan years uh, after Vietnam when President Reagan came in and there wasn't an appetite to send hundreds of thousands of troops to fight Soviet communism. So we had the Reagan Doctrine where we helped indigenous allies and proxies fight the Soviet Union. Isn't that the right strategy for us going forward now? And why would we want to get to zero in any of those countries? You had Afghanistan, Syria. What was the third that you identified? Uh, Iraq. Iraq. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we are. <laughs> I mean, I think, that's, yeah. I think that's what the administration is doing. I think that's so what So the president saying. committed to keeping some troops in all the three of those countries? He's committed to keeping the forces there that are necessary to continue the counterterrorism fight. We've done it very effectively. The other, the other thing I'll say is I think it's important for the American people. Don't just stare at the number of soldiers on the ground. It's not the appropriate metric for the effectiveness of one's counterterrorism campaign. Uh, I can tell you, I think we are more effective today with the force posture we had in Afghanistan than we were in Afghanistan when there were six figures of soldiers there. Don't forget American air power. Don't forget all the other capabilities the United States brings to bear in these regions. It's, it's, it's awfully simple to stare and say, how many people do you have? Well, if your tooth-to-tail ratio is not right, if you have 40,000 people there, but you have 1,000 fighters and 39,000 people doing legal analysis, protecting the State Department officials in the embassy, you are not in as good a posture as if you have 2,000 kick-ass fighters doing the Lord's work, mm -hmm. conducting a counter-terror campaign. So we, we often use the shorthand of force levels as American commitment, and that's a mistake. It doesn't reflect what this administration is doing. It doesn't reflect the effectiveness of the counterterrorism campaign in which we continue to be engaged. Exit question. What's the number one thing that you and the president have done in foreign policy which you think he doesn't get sufficient credit for? The focus on the risk to the next generation from China. Uh, this is something that no president has been prepared to take on. We have a complex set of interlocking economic relationships with there, which makes the challenge even more difficult than we've seen from the Soviet Union and other uh, true threats to the United States of America. I'm, I'm really proud that the president identified this, enabled all of the elements of American power to be brought to bear so that we can get that relationship right for the next 25 years. Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. All right, Danny, so what do you think the big news out of that, uh, out of that interview was? Well, what I really, uh, well, Big news and what interested me are two different things. Okay. Big news, 100% are the Secretary's very clear, very explicit accusations against Obama administration officials, basically saying, I, I don't want to use the expression to aid and comfort because that has real implications. But Oh, you know, everybody uses it against President Trump. Why don't we use it against the Obama administration officials? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to accuse the president of treason if it's Trump, but not, a, but not poor old Barack Obama and his cohort. Well, and to be fair, I want to be explicit about this, and I bet the secretary would have been as well if we'd pressed him. This is not Barack Obama who's doing this. This is yes. John Kerry. This is Ben Rhodes. This is, you know, this is Obama's team. I don't think that the president himself is Agreed. calling up and, and reading bedtime stories to the Iranians in the same disgusting way that John Kerry is. But let's let, you know, Pompeo say it himself. I took notes. 
you know, I'll probably get a couple words wrong, but he says, just hang on. President Trump will lose in November and America will write you a check and underwrite all those activities that you like to get and help you get a nuclear bomb. That's basically what he's saying the, that the Obama team is saying to the Iranian leadership. To hear that from the Secretary of State is pretty explosive. It is. And it's also appalling that they're doing it. I mean, this is, you know, this is this is the thing that I think uh, there's a lot of things that Donald Trump has changed from the Obama administration's foreign policy. But the one that really rankles them is withdrawing from this Iran nuclear deal because they, I mean, they put everything on the line to get this deal. They turned a blind eye to all sorts of nefarious behavior and were willing to send pallets of cash to Tehran on airplanes and unmarked bills and secret planes. And they just thought this was the crowning achievement of their of their uh, foreign policy. And Donald Trump just basically wiped it out and turned on the maximum pressure campaign in a way that has really, really put the Iranians in a corner. As, as he said in our interview, if you're about to sign up with the Iranian military, you're getting a pay cut. If you're a, a terrorist out there who's expecting a check from Tehran, guess what? It's not coming, or if it's coming, it's going to be a lot smaller than you expected. These are good things for our country. This is good things for our foreign policy. And, you know, uh, the, we, uh, we did press him on what's the end goal in Iran. And it's not clear that there's a coherence in the administration entirely on what the end goal is. But I've always said, we've discussed this many times on the podcast, and I said it to him, that the sanctions are an end in and of themselves. Because if, even if you don't succeed in getting either getting the Iranian regime to collapse or change its behavior willingly or get a new deal, which I think actually would be the worst outcome uh, of all of these things, they have less cash to go out and do what they were doing. Because when the Obama people sent pallets of cash, guess what? Iran was on the march across the entire region fueled by that money. And Trump and Pompeo have cut off the spigot. Yeah, I mean, look, you and I have had this argument, you know, a few dozen times on the podcast alone, let alone in person. And while I think the secretary was very gracious about the um, schizophrenic policy that the administration has, at the end of the day, I do think it is pretty schizophrenic. You know, it's all good to play innocent and say, yes, of course, you can be the best guys in the world. You can be Jeffersonian government if you want to. You know, that's just not going to happen. That's that is a regime change strategy. Now, again, you know, it, it, it is. Okay, the secretary finessed it pretty elegantly, so, but it's, it, it's definitely, you know, it's, it has some incoherence to it, notwithstanding the, the very, very ample silver lining. What about Afghanistan? What did you think of his answer on Afghanistan? You know, I think uh, what I found reassuring was not just on Afghanistan, but more broadly, that he basically endorsed this idea of a Reagan doctrine approach to not just Afghanistan, but to Syria and to Iraq and to other places around the world where we still face the terrorist danger. I mean, look, there is not an appetite in this country, just as there wasn't after Vietnam, for massive deployments of troops or large deployments of troops. And so regardless of the president campaigning on his ending endless wars and all the rest of it, the public doesn't want us to, to be engaged in endless wars. And we've sort of backed into this policy of having a light footprint uh, in these countries and enabling our partners to to carry out the the mission of keeping our enemies down. I know the president wants to get down to zero in Afghanistan. He wanted definitely wanted to get down. To, he's tried several times to get down to zero in Syria. He probably would want to do it in Iraq. But Mike Pompeo basically said, no, our strategy is not to get down to zero. Our strategy is to keep a light footprint and, you know, not ha have a real good tooth-to-tail ratio, which means more warfighters and more pointy head of the spear and less support, 
And, you know, if we're going to have a small footprint, but it's going to be, uh, you know, some really kick-ass special operations forces who are going to go after the terrorists, I think that's the best outcome that we can expect. And I'm glad that he sort of said it publicly that that's the goal, that the goal isn't to get to zero. Yeah, well, I'm glad he said it too. But, you know, we, you and I say always that, you know, I, we do not have mob rule in the United States. And by the way, these are not endless wars. So, you know, let's not slip into that, you know, that parlance. These are not. I was just quoting wars. the president. I'm not, I don't, I don't call them yeah. endless wars. I've, I've written a and column it's saying it's a canard. It is, and you are right. It is a canard. But you know, look, the, the role of the president is not to is not to go along with the public's uh, with the with the public's views on such things when they are when they are informed by rabble rousers and you know people like Rand Paul. Job of the president is leadership, whether the president is Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Donald Duck. And that's why I don't like to see that being cited as a as a factor here. I don't think that's appropriate. Our our mission should be our mission, and our mission is not to satisfy the whims of of loudmouth people on Twitter, uh, whoever they are. So I thought actually that that I wasn't that reassured by what he said on Afghanistan. I don't think that the facts on the ground really support the idea that we're doing way better than we have been. I think the facts on the ground support the idea that we're doing exactly the same as we've always been doing, which is fundamentally not winning. That's why we're doing the things that you have condemned very roundly and very correctly. You know, which is sitting down with the Taliban and basically saying, hey, you know, we know you're still supporters of Al Qaeda, but eh, whatever, you know, can we, can we hand off to you? Look, the problem we face is that the president really doesn't believe that we should be in all of these places, that he's being persuaded by generals who and intelligence officials who present him the facts on the ground that he can't get down to zero, even though he really wants to get down to zero. And so as a result, he's not going to the American people and saying, here's the mission. You know, when I was in the in the White House, President Bush always wanted us to say, here's here's the mission. Here's the consequences of success. And also here's the consequences of failure in order to try to win public support. Trump is not doing that because he doesn't see it that way. And that that is a problem uh, for us going forward, because the American people are fundamentally reluctant internationalists. They're not isolationists. And a lot of people out there have pitched this as now we're now in this failed nation building mission. And why are we there 18 years after it? And there's nobody, there's no voice with a bully pulpit countering that narrative because the president kind of agrees with that narrative. And so, you know, I th- we have to be realistic about what we can accomplish in, in this administration. The good thing in all of these situations where it comes, whether it's negotiating with the Taliban or the Iranians or even the North Koreans, is that they don't seem that eager to cut the kind of deal that we would need in order to pull out or give them what they want. And Trump, to his credit, doesn't look like he's, in most cases, willing to cut a bad deal. I mean, the, if you look at North Korea, you know, we're 20 months after the Singapore summit and he hasn't changed the red lines and the North Koreans are upset. And, you know. It... Yeah. Hey, hang on a second. First of all, I, <laughs> I just think this is interesting. The secretary, was he gave you a really interesting answer when you asked about why it was that we weren't as tough on North Korea, basically, as we are on Iran and why we're not using secondary sanctions. In fact, where we have been, the administration literally sanctioned Iran again moments before you and the secretary sat down to talk. I got the email from the White House announcing it. And yet we haven't imposed new sanctions on North Korea in 
quite a long time. So, but know, we haven't lifted any so. sanctions on North Korea. We haven't oh, given come them. On. I mean, we haven't given them diplomatic recognition. We haven't given them any of the things they want. If I mean, it, I, Obama did this, we would be ripping the crap out of him. No, and I disagree with you, Danny. We have an inconsistent policy. I disagree with you, Danny. The president is. I would be ripping Obama. I ripped Obama when he sat down with with Raul Castro, who is the moral equivalent of Kim Jong-un, because he was sitting there singing, take me out to the ballpark in a Havana baseball stadium and like lifted all sorts of restrictions and got nothing in exchange. I ripped him for Iran because he cut a bad deal that that favored the Iranians and didn't get enough in return. Trump has not cut a bad deal with any of these people yet. I mean, maybe he will. I don't know. But, you know, you got to give the man credit that, you know, 20 months after the Singapore summit, yeah, maybe you'd like him to, I would like him to tighten sanctions, to go after these secondary sanctions, the people that are violating it. We could uh, be better about enforcing them. We could tighten the screws more like we are with Iran. I'd like to see Iran-like sanctions on North Korea and on China and on Russia for violating the sanctions. But give him credit. He has not cut a bad deal. He has not lifted any sanctions. He's not given them any of the things they want. And they're stuck with choices that they don't want to make. And that's why we're sort of at a standstill for 20 months is because he literally he's not sitting there saying, oh, the North Koreans won't negotiate with us. They won't come our way. What can we get? What can, how can we sweeten the deal? What can we give up to get them to the table like every president before him has? And the reason why we got that horrible deal with with Bill Clinton and our administration and the Bush administration that I worked in didn't get very far uh, with the North Koreans. He's not given in. He's not given an inch. I'd like to see the screws tighten more, but he deserves credit for not. Uh, loosening these sanctions. All right, Mark. Well, we'll let you have your 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 little pay on to to the president and his North Korea policy. Let's close out. <laughs> yes. Let's close out with with what he said about Turkey, and what he said about China. I didn't think that. I, I mean, I guess I didn't get that excited about the about his commentary on the Turkish relationship. You know, Turkey has really been a, a disaster. What did you think about it? I mean. They're in NATO, and he made the point that Turkey is, uh, you know, they've they've been there for us in a lot of missions. They've contributed financially. They've contributed troops. But, you know, as he pointed out, by the time you hear this uh, podcast, he will have signed the National Defense Authorization Act that basically blocks F-35 uh, sales to Turkey because they bought this Russian air defense system. And the Turks are really mad <laughs> about that. You know, on the other hand, I thought that, you know, one of the most shameful things the president did was give the green light to Turkey to uh, to go in and start uh, taking the territory that our Kurdish allies were were in. So Turkey, Turkey is a mixed bag for me. Yeah, it's a, and it's a very mixed bag for this administration. The other mixed bag, and this is our last point, really, is on this, this Uyghurs question. I've been I, I don't I don't care what motivates this, this administration on China. I've been really happy to see them highlighting the treatment of Uyghurs by the communist Chinese. I've been really happy to see that they've really called the Chinese to account. I hope that even with a trade deal, we continue to lean very hard on them. But there is an irony that uh, that we're worried about a million Uyghurs in concentration camps and not really that concerned about half a million dead people in Syria. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. 
But, you know, look, I, I think actually the president is doing pretty well vis-a-vis China. He, as you said, we've sanctioned them over the uh, detention of the Uyghurs. The president did sign the Hong Kong Policy Act, and uh, that was a good thing, you know, that they're, they're trying to do more in the South China Sea. I know our scholars over here are frustrated that they're not doing more, but part of that is a resources issue. We don't have really the resources to be as aggressive in the South China Sea, and, we, and they haven't really executed the pivot that every president in the last few years has, has promised. No president has executed the pivot from the Middle East to Asia uh, that, that was promised. But Trump is really squeezing the Chinese government on their, their economy. Uh, look, our economy is booming. Unemployment is at historic lows. And the Chinese economy is, is not growing as fast. And some economists would say that they lie about their economic figures and it's actually contracting. So he's, he's really squeezing them on a lot of fronts. And I, you know, the exit question for Pompeo was, you know, what's, your, what's the biggest un, underappreciated achievement of the administration? He said, this is it, that there is, is really altering our approach to communist China. And he focuses specifically, it's very interesting rhetorically, he says, the challenge posed to our country by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that is, uh, you know, that uh, I think I think he's Actually, right. let me correct you. He said the challenge posed to our next generation. Yes. Which I thought I really appreciated. And I think that's true. There's no question we are doing, you know, we are doing okay, even managing now with the Chinese. But this will, you know, as China contract. As they become more dangerous, we are looking at real threats. And I, uh, I think we can end on a, on a beautiful Christmas and Hanukkah note of agreement here. <laughs> of gratitude to the secretary for being game to sit down with us and, uh, and tell us what the hell is going on and to wish everybody uh, you know, a happy Hanukkah and a, and a, and a Merry Christmas. I join you in that. Let's, uh, we'll be back very soon with another podcast of What the Hell is Going On. Thanks for listening. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.